Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Brooke Andrade, Director of the Library at the Center and your host for this episode. Transformative innovations like the telephone, radio, and gas-powered automobile help shape the modern era, both technologically and culturally. But perhaps nothing more powerfully influenced global commerce and movement in the early 20th century than the emergence of commercial aviation. Advances in air travel created new possibilities for travel and trade that continue to shape regional and international dynamics to the present day. Our guest today is John Wong, Associate Professor of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Hong Kong. As a fellow this year, John has been working on a project entitled Hong Kong Takes Flight, Commercial Aviation and the Making of Hong Kong, 1930s to 1998, that explores not only global connections that new flight routes facilitated, but also the imagination and manifestation of modernity through air travel. Welcome, John, and thank you for taking the time to discuss your fascinating project. Thanks, Brooke. Your first book, Global Trade in the 19th Century, is the study of a prominent Chinese merchant, Hao Kwa, whose connections stretched from China to India, America, and Britain. But your current project, which you're working on here at the center, seems quite different in scope in that it's the history of an entire industry and, of course, focuses on more recent events. So can you tell me a little bit about this project and what compelled you to write a history of Hong Kong's airline industry given your previous work on the 19th century. Well, thanks for bringing up my uh, first book project. Um, uh, you know, it was uh, more of a study of one particular merchant, but then at the same time, he was such a powerful merchant that he basically directed global tea industry in the early part of the 19th century. And in that sense, my current project continues on that theme because my primary research interest um, is on the flow of people, goods, capital, and ideas with an emphasis on Hong Kong and the Pearl River Delta area, which in uh, today's language has been reincarnated as the Greater Bay Area. And I'm in in particular interested in how urban hubs um, surfaced and waned um, in that region and how these urban hubs connected themselves in the regional and global networks. So commercial aviation is a concrete manifestation of such networks, uh, which took off in Hong Kong as a city developed into a powerful economy. So I'm using this project as a lens, the commercial aviation industry, as a prism to study the growth of Hong Kong into a metropolis and also an economic power. So there are these common threads in terms of transportation and globalization. Um, you know, you've written that the growth of Hong Kong's airline industry was not predetermined. What do you mean by that? Not at all. I mean, we have to think about um, this transformative power of uh, technology, in particular, in this case, uh, commercial aviation. Well, of course, you have a lot of historical roots um, that would determine where the airports are going to be, how the flights would be routed. But rather than accepting air travel as an inevitable outcome in the era of global modernity, this broke project argues that Hong Kong's development into a regional and global aviation hub was not preordained. Uh, we have to acknowledge the um, ongoing significance of uh, vested interest and trenched interest. But then let me, let me just give you an example. Um, if you look at early aviation maps, uh, you will see a pattern that's very much a puddle jumping pattern. Uh, 
But as flights uh, continue to cover longer and longer distances, many of these dots on the map, on the old map, started disappearing. So whether your city is going to stay on the map or not on the map, that's going to be something that is very um, pivotal. This is something that's going to be determined based on the enterprising efforts of um, the movers and shakers in the industry and also uh, people who would like to continue to plan the city on the map of commercial aviation. So I think it's just all too easy for us now to take it for granted that it was just something that happened. But then it was quite a process um, that spanned a few decades. So what was on the map in the early industry that's not anymore? Uh, well, there are quite a few of them. Um, let me just say that well, many of the early dots were also seaports. The way that we call our airports airports is no coincidence. Um, if you look at some of the early flights, uh, they were called flying boats uh, for some of the earlier technologies, and they needed to dock at a port. And that's how you have the continuation from one technology to the new technology. Now, uh, a couple of things happened since then, especially after World War II. You have the construction of runways, and that allowed more of these uh, events, technology, newer planes to land at specific sites. So it requires a lot of investments, uh, financial and geopolitical investments. And some of the places that have started to disappear, I mean, if you think of the old imperial route, the horseshoe route of the British Empire, places like Rangoon uh, started disappearing. Um, Some of the earlier airports in the post-World War II era, like Manila, it was a bigger airport than Hong Kong in the 60s. Um, If you were to look at today's, well, maybe not today, but the pre-COVID route map, uh, Manila um, has waned in importance. Um, And of course, that's because the growth of Hong Kong and other other aviation hubs uh, that have expanded at the expense of some of these older establishments. So you've noted that aviation creates a liminal space that divides and connects at the same time. How can an airline both divide and connect? I think the story of Hong Kong is particularly telling in that regard because it's quite a period of compressed history. Um, Say, since the end of World War II to, say, the handover of 1997, you have a lot of geopolitical developments. And the airline industry, because it's very much a national, a state um, initiative, because you need to negotiate landing rights, you need to construct airports, that requires the sponsorship of a political regime. So early on, you have the divide of Hong Kong into a certain camp of the Cold War divide on one side of the bamboo curtain. So you have uh, Hong Kong linking up to specific cities. So early on is Singapore, Bangkok, um, certain ports in Malaysia, and also Taiwan. So in that sense, it's the restructuring of the old uh, Nanyang space um, for overseas Chinese, that's the South Sea um, in Chinese, to a zone that was quickly decolonizing. So it was deconstructing itself at the same time. It was just emerging as a new configuration. And later on, this industry basically broke through to uh, points farther afield. So you have in the 70s and the 80s, the reach of Hong Kong Airways um, into North America, Australia, and also Europe, um, and not because of the sponsorship of um, the titans in industry, not just Pan Am's, not just British Airways, but Hong Kong's own Cathay Pacific as well. So it divided in the sense that it was 
carving up the world into different zones, and Hong Kong was in one particular zone. But then with the development of technology, with shifting geopolitics, it extended the reach of Hong Kong. And from the standpoint of individual Hong Kongers, uh, people living in Hong Kong, there was also the expansion of um, the cultural and socioeconomic spaces in which they could find themselves inhabitants. Um, it was originally more of the cultural zone. Um, you know, if you were to look at uh, entertainment industry, the linked up Hong Kong was Singapore and, and Taipei. But then uh, soon enough, um, by the 80s, you have the mass exodus of um, Hong Kongers into places like Vancouver, London, and Sydney. And those are precisely the points uh, that a- aviation connected Hong Kong in that particular period. So you mentioned Cathay Airlines, and I know you do focus quite a bit on that particular airline in your work. One of the chapters in your forthcoming book explores Hong Kong's history through the lens of the uniforms of the Cathay Pacific Airlines flight attendants. So I'm dying to know about the evolution of these uniforms, why they changed, and uh, what's the larger story they tell? Well, let me first situate that in the wider context of the entire industry. It was not just Cathay that was looking for its identity expression through the uniform of especially the female flight attendants, but it's also the industry at large. But then in the case of Hong Kong, it's a particularly interesting story because as the airline was moving from more of um, a model that's uh, built on top of of uh, military infrastructure, both in terms of the uh, landing facilities and also the airplanes, but also at the same time, the uniform of the flight attendants. They, they started off being very much uh, like Red Cross uniform, not so flamboyant. But then by the 60s, different airlines were trying to experiment with different expressions of what the airlines uh, stood for based on the place of origin. So in the 60s, there was a round of uniform design at uh, Cathay Pacific that was very much uh, Chinese-inspired. So you have the Tipao Changsam type of style with uh, Chinese buttons and the Mandarin collar. But that didn't quite sit well with the Cathay image that was very much Pan-Asian. So they, they claimed to uh, be serving the Orient, and they actually hired from many of the ports where they connected um, with Hong Kong. And... In that round, it was not quite sitting well with the ethnicity that the airline was representing. Unlike, say, you know, you, you have Singapore Airlines, a Singapore girl, or, you know, the kimono wearing um, uh, flight attendants on um, JAL. So then quickly, you get into more of another round of redesign that started in 1969. The emphasis there, space age logistics. And that is not only something that resonated with the theme of that era globally, but also the development of Hong Kong into a garment manufacturing hub that was very much uh, driven by your your um, expertise in logistics. And quickly enough, by the 70s, you have a lot of, um, a few rounds of uh, designer uniforms. So you, you have a bunch of French designers uh, designing what was first more locally inflected in terms of the uh, ocean sea designs with the curves. And then quickly, it became more of a business pragmatic uniform design. So we mean business. Um, This is a cosmopolitan that has its roots in Chinese culture. But then what we stand for is more of the efficiency uh, that the airline facilitates. It was only in the last, say, 10, 20 years that Cathay Pacific um, started resurrecting some of the Chinese um, elements and the design, especially with the choice of a local uh, designer, Eddie Lau, 
who then infused a lot of Chinese elements, actually reminiscent of the early uh, 1960s design, um, some of the Mandarin stand-up collars or whatnot. But then it sits more comfortably now as uh, an element of this cosmopolitan representation. So I have to think you didn't go into this project knowing you would spend so much time on clothing design, for example. What else have you learned that surprised you that you didn't know before you started your work? Well, this project is a combination of my professional interest and my personal experience. I actually went to school blocks away from the old airport in Hong Kong. And in those days, um, you got used to it. But then if a plane is flying over your head, you have to pause your lessons for, say, 30 seconds or so. But then in that sense, that was how we could have clocked the economic development of Hong Kong in that era. Now, as I am looking at it more from an analytical standpoint, I didn't know that the airport was not supposed to be around for that long. As a matter of fact, in the late 40s, when the British were eager to build up Hong Kong as an aviation hub, they were going to move it to a different site. But it's only because of uh, communist takeover of China in 1949 that basically put an end to that more aggressive development. And that old airport called Kai Tak served us until 1998. Um, So that's the story that I know from my personal upbringing. And that, if you were to think about it that way, you can see how the development of aviation in Hong Kong, as well as the city's economic development, happened in a more incremental way recalibrated, reoriented uh, based on the geopolitical situation at various points in time. So I I hope that this is a good way for us to tell the story of um, the development of Hong Kong in a more nuanced way, uh, with more twists and turns along the way, rather than thinking about it as the cosmopolitan as it is today. Yeah, so that's why your project ends at 1998. I was going to ask about that. I know that you have rooted this project in archival work. And of course, as a librarian, that excites me very much. Can you talk about your sources and maybe share one or two of the archival successes you've had that shaped this project? Well, thanks to you and um, our colleagues here, I've collected a lot of interesting information on um, Cathay and the whole industry. Now, this, back to your earlier question about how this is linked up to my earlier project, I see a lot of parallels there. Uh, For my early project on the China trade, I look at the East India Company archives in London. So for this one, I look at the uh, British Airways archives in London. And if there is any continuity there in the way they keep the information, they keep the data, they run the numbers. And at the same time, I looked at the American traders' records for their earlier project. And in this case, I looked at the Pan Am archives. Um, Of course, Pan Am was a lot more developed than the early China traders in America. And of course, you have the local information. In this case, is uh, Cathay Pacific and along with the local Chinese newspapers and all the uh, lovely um, local colors that that we find. Uh, One piece of information that um, I find um, to be quite fascinating is back to the development of um, this sense of expression of who you are. Uh, One of the magazines that you have located for us is an air travel magazine. Basically, it's an advertisement of sort for the industry, not just Hong Kong, but global industry for the American um, customer base. And in the 1970s, there was a poster um, of Cathay Pacific boasting how it was uh, going to be um, your your connector to the Orient. 
And instead of featuring just you know Hong Kong personnel, they have engineers and um, pilots from the British Commonwealth. They have flight attendants uh, recruited from all the ports of calls uh, that Cathay Pacific served. They have a Swiss chef um, that promised international cooking for its customer base. So, so it is more of a cosmopolitan feel uh, that Cathay was projecting at that particular uh, moment in time. This is the early 70s. And I find that to be quite fascinating because it is easy for us to reduce any corporate entity to one type of identity. But then for a city in flux, for a city that was going through a lot of uh, geopolitical transformation, for an industry that was uh, springing forth because of new technological development, uh, there were a lot of possibilities. Just as the same way that I would hope that for a vibrant city like Hong Kong, we can continue to tap into the various resources, draw energy from the various elements uh, that you know, make the city so exciting. Thank you so much, John. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.